I want to ask a question. We're going to start a little odd this week. I want to ask a rhetorical question. Don't answer it out loud, but for all the parents or grandparents in the room or future parents or grandparents or anyone that has anyone in your life that you care for or that you love and you want to see them on a good track in life, okay? I think that includes pretty much everyone. You can choose one of two paths for your children or grandchildren. Option A is your child rebels against you, steals money from the family, runs away, and sets out on a new life that you disagree with, full of debauchery, full of, 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 of wastefulness, not getting an education, not building any kind of career, not doing everything to make themselves get behind and cause great harm upon themselves overall in life. That's option A. Option B is your child is obedient, goes by the rules, uh, uh, passes all their tests, straight A student, gets into the best schools, gets a great education. You never have a problem with discipline with him or her. Everything works out fine. They attend church regularly. They volunteer and, and give of their time and of their energy for the sake of caring for others. And they never give you any problems. Which one would you choose for your children or grandchildren? Now, you're probably thinking, Stephen, there's a catch. There has to be a catch. All of us would choose option B. But what if, by choosing option B, you were actually choosing something that could hinder your children or grandchildren from understanding and experiencing truly the love of God? Now, I am not saying that we should celebrate or try to push our children or grandchildren or anything towards rebellion. But what I'm saying and what I'm hoping to reveal to us in this text is that there is, when we think of rebellion against God, there's this tendency to think that it is acting out, that it's this, this, this uprising against authority and this, this, this um, act of outright disobedience towards all that one has been taught. When in fact, there can be a deeper underlying rebellion against God that is born of one's own self-righteousness. And it can be far more dangerous than another outward rebellion that we would think of. And so what I want to argue for you from this text, do not let your self-righteousness keep you from the love of God. Let me say that again. This is, this is what, I'm, what I think this passage is showing us. Do not let your self-righteousness keep you from the love of God. I invite you to follow along. I'm going to read our text. It's known to many as the parable of the prodigal son. I actually think it would be better titled the parable of the two sons. Some of you, many of you perhaps are even familiar with this parable. But I invite you to follow along as I read this is Jesus that is speaking, and in verse 11 it says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God write these truths of His Word upon our heart, our hearts this day. Three steps that I want us to take as we navigate our way through this passage. First, the wonder of the Father's love. Second, the scandal of self-righteousness. And third, the older brother we really need. The wonder of the father's love, the scandal of self-righteousness. Third, the older brother we really need. So first, in verses 11 to 24, you have the wonder of the father's love. If you remember from Neil's sermon last week, which I encourage you to go listen to if you weren't able to hear it, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we get a lot of context that's important for understanding this parable. In these verses, it tells us that uh, there were many tax collectors and sinners, people that were thought of as like, like the lower rungs of society, the morally uh, objectionable people. They were drawing near to Jesus while Pharisees and scribes, highly religious people, were repulsed that these others were coming near to Jesus. 
And so Jesus lays out, starts to lay out these parables to articulate truths about himself and what it takes to come near to God, to know God. And so as these lawbreakers and pariahs are dining with Jesus, Jesus is telling, he's underscoring the fact that to enter the kingdom of God, you must, like he said in verse 13, you cannot enter through the wide door. You must come through the narrow door. The wide door is the one where you take all your accomplishments and you knock on the door and you say, all right, I'm ready. Look at all that I have done. Let me in. But the narrow door is the one that forces you to become a beggar and enter in lowly, desperate for the grace of God and the grace of God alone to sustain you. And so Jesus addressing a crowd of people who in their moral upstanding, great virtue, service to others, their piety, they felt they did not need the grace of God. He gives them this parable. He introduces it in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And the the younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And then not many days later, the younger son gathered everything he had and journeyed to a far country where he squandered it all. You're familiar probably with these early details of what you know as the parable of the prodigal son. Don't let these, early, these details that you're familiar with rob you of the shock of this story. This son is breaking relationship with his father asking for his inheritance now. He's saying, I don't want anything else to do with this family. Give me what is mine and I'll go my way, you go yours. He would go where? This this boy from this Jewish family would go to Gentile territory. We know this because he ended up hiring himself out to work for a man who farmed pigs. You can imagine the realization of the younger son of all that he has done as you hear verses 17 to 19. He came to himself after he had squandered all of his wealth that he had been given or all the inheritance that he had been given. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Don't let the familiarity of the story rob you of the suspense. You can hear this and you can wonder, how how will the father respond? Will he say, no, son, you have brought shame upon our family. You have embarrassed us. Do you know what it's like to be the father who gave part of his inheritance to his son who ran away and squandered it? No, 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 no. Look at this. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, just note these things. Just note this. His father saw him. His father felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. You might make note of these in your Bible. I have have each of these circled. Father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, kissed him. 
The father did not sit on the porch and and say, all right, let's hear what he's got to say. No, he ran to him. I heard heard a story, or I read a story as I was preparing this sermon about a a, uh, man who was a painter, who a, a Christian man asked this man who was a painter to paint this story for him. He wanted to have a painting of the parable of the prodigal son. And he's telling him the story because he was unfamiliar with it. He's telling him the story, and the man who's painting it said, no, 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 that's unrealistic. That, 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 that's unrealistic. The son would come and beg. He would come and, and, and cry out to his father for mercy. No way the father runs out to greet him. That's what the son in this story expects. Remember, he's got his carefully rehearsed speech. And he's saying, I, and he's basically willing to chalk it up. I, I know it's done for me as a son. Let me just be a hired servant. I know I, 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 have, I have failed royally, and I am unworthy of your grace as a son. But do you notice something? Look at this in verse 18, okay? He's, he's, he's prepared his speech, and we've all done this, right? Maybe not, maybe before a parent, or maybe not, but you know when you like royally mess up, maybe in a workplace, and you, you've got to plead for mercy from an employer or a higher up or maybe with a teacher or somebody or, or a spouse or whomever where you've, you've, you've really messed up. It's not up for debate. And you start to carefully rehearse, how am I going to say this to this person? Oh gosh, this is going to be really hard. This is going to be really difficult. And look at how the father responds. Look at this. Look, the son practices his speech in verses 18 and 19. But then you see after the father runs out to meet him, verse 20, Verse 21, the son said to him, he starts his speech, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He doesn't finish the speech that he has rehearsed. The father cuts him off. But what does he say? He says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. The father wants the son to know he is welcomed back into the family. You know the best robe in the house would be the father's robe. He's, this is a sign that you are brought back fully in to the grace of the family. You are celebrated by a feast welcoming you home. The story is astonishing in a variety of ways. This kind of love is uncommon. We, we talk in this day and age about love, but we talk about it in a manner, I don't even know if we realize it, we talk about it in such a conditional manner. As if somebody is worthy of our love or unworthy of our love. So they're unworthy, they don't get it. Or a quid pro quo, they do this, I love them. They don't do this, they're, they're, they're dead to me. This love of the father is almost scandalous because he meets his son who has nowhere else to turn and he meets him and welcomes him into the family yet again. Perhaps you have been in a far country like the younger son. Probably more metaphorically. But in your rejection of your heavenly father, You've given yourself over to this idol of, I'm going to chase the life that I want to live. It's going to be mine. God, you don't get to call the shots. And yet now you have somehow found yourself at a point where the life you anticipated, the life you desired, has proven itself empty. And has proven to take you to places you did not anticipate. 
And now you wonder, is there room for me back at home, coming home from a far country? The Father says yes. This is the wonder of the Father's love. There's a wonderful picture here in this passage of what we call conversion or of what we call new birth. In verse 24, the Father says the reason for celebrating this feast The reason for bringing the son in, the younger son in, is he says what in verse 24? For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is a picture of conversion. The Bible tells us that we who have been in our rebellion against God, our sin against him, we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually lost. But when the grace of God encounters us and we see that we can come home and we see that we can find a mercy that wipes the tears from our faces and meets us with a hope that fills us and changes our lives to the point where we know, okay, I, I can be made new, given a new hope, given a new heart, given a new love, all born by the hope, the heart, the love of God that has been given to me as he welcomes me home and clothes me with his robe, he adopts me as not one who comes in as a servant, but as a son or daughter. He meets you with mercy, and he gives new birth. Perhaps you're trying to sort through or figure out Christianity, or perhaps you have a pretty good grasp on it, but you have been in that far country for a long time. I urge you to hear this parable, hear the wonder of the love of God, And know that he welcomes you back home through his son, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more of this or or talk more about this after the service, I would love to speak with you. Feel free to grab me in the lobby or afterwards or whatever, and, and, and I'd love to help fill you in on that. How the love of God becomes real and tangible to you, even as you live in the pigsty of your own, trying to sort through the situation that you're in today. But there's something here that we have to consider. This is a beautiful story. But it doesn't end here. It'd be great if it just ended at the end of verse 24. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. It'd be fantastic if it ended right there. But it doesn't. And that is because the love of God for prodigal younger sons is an implication of the passage, but not the main application. And now we get to the main application. And that is the scandal of self-righteousness. Listen to this. Now his older son, this is verse 25, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Now, you should understand a couple of things. I touched on one of them, the shame that the younger brother would have brought on the family. Everybody around town, when the younger brother, when word of him fleeing to Gentile territory and taking his inheritance and leaving his father and brother and whoever else, leaving them at home, and and, and word around town, there would have been whispers as the father or brother walked in the marketplace. Yeah, you heard what their brother did. You heard what his son did. He had to carry the shame of this younger brother. 
Another reality is that in this day, the way that inheritance worked between like fathers and their sons or fathers and their children was, this, this might sound really crazy to you, but it's how it functioned in Jesus' day, is the oldest son received two-thirds of the inheritance, of the family inheritance, and then younger siblings would split up the last third. So imagining in this scenario that you have two sons, and the older brother would receive two-thirds, and the younger brother received his one-third. So by the father bringing the younger brother back home, after the younger brother has squandered all of his inheritance, this is now cutting into what the older brother knows and believes should be his. You, you, you register with that? So there's an animosity there. This guy wasted his inheritance, and now you're bringing him back, and he's going to start wasting mine. There's a personal cost here to welcoming him back home. And now look at the stunning exchange between father and older brother. You can, you can feel the animosity of the older brother as it comes to the surface in the second part of verse 28. His father comes out to entreat him. His father, look at this, the second time the father leaves the house, he leaves the feast that is ongoing for the younger brother because he wants the older brother to come into the feast as well. And you hear the words of the older brother. Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You, you hear this. He doesn't even talk about not my brother, not, not, the, not your son, the son of yours. It's like, I, I don't want to be associated with him. When the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you might say brought shame upon our family, our name. You killed the fattened calf for him? This is where we must come to grips with something altogether unsettling. The younger son who went and lived a wild life of rebellion outside the home in what, the, what Jesus called a far country, but is now brought into the Father's feast. While the older son who stayed home, he's actually in his own far country. Though he never physically left the family home, his heart is far from his father's. See, we have to come to grips with the difficult reality that the parable of the two sons requires us to examine our own hearts as well, our own self-righteousness. One brother ran from the father in pursuit of, of self-discovery. I think there's a world out there that you are hindering me from, and I will be made complete in that world out there, and he ran to it. But the older brother ran from the father not in pursuit of self-discovery, but in his own self-righteousness. It's fascinating if you think about it. Both brothers wanted the father's wealth. The younger brother said, give me my inheritance, I'm out. The older brother said, you're robbing for my inheritance by bringing him in. You've never thrown for me a feast. You've never killed the fattened calf for me. Where is mine? In his self-righteousness, he is turned off to the grace of the Father. But the younger brother had come to himself. The older brother does not realize the scandal of his self-righteousness. You see, Christianity is captivating when grace is beautiful, but it's actually quite repulsive when you feel grace is not needed. 
when it's just a social club, where it's boasted about our, our, our good deeds, our morality, when, when, we're, when we're held up as paragons of virtue. But when it's younger brothers, younger siblings, who know the mistakes, know the failures, know the sins that they have committed, who rejoice in the grace of God, that is where it is beautiful. In fact, all throughout the Gospels, you have these regular patterns of people who know their great need for grace, who draw near to the Lord, but those who do not believe they need grace are repulsed by those who draw near to Him. And I have to be honest. As I read, as I studied this, part of me resonated with the older brother. I read this and I'm like, yeah, yeah, he has a point. He has a point. See, here's what I mean. When I said Christianity is captivating when grace is beautiful, but repulsive when grace is not needed, the scandal of the younger brother's sin against his father is that he had committed all these sins and he needed to come home and repent. The scandal of the self-righteousness of the older brother is that he had not committed these sins. He didn't have any rebellion against his father that he needed to make right. He had stayed dutifully home and done the work. But he had the problem of his own trust in his self-righteousness, his goodness, his morality. His hope was tied to what he had done, not to the love of the Father. Do you see that? And this plagues us. We think to ourselves, okay, I have to measure up before God. And so I have to, I have to make sure that, that I'm buttoned up, I'm tied up, all my T's are crossed, all my I's are dotted, and I, I measure up before God. But the danger of that is, a, of, a first of all, it, it fails to grasp that we cannot measure up before God, that we are desperately relying on the grace of God. But B, it, it leaves no category, no understanding for the fact that it is possible to sin against God, not in action, but in heart. In heart that says, I can do this on my own, or I have done this on my own, and God, you owe me, like the, like the father owed the older brother. So how does this manifest itself in our lives? You might think, I, I don't think I'm the older brother here. Or I don't think I deal with older brother tendencies. Well, plot twist, we all do. When you're stagnant, when you're struggling in your own prayer life, chalk it up or, or carefully investigate. Why, it, why, why is prayer hard for me? You know why it's hard for me sometimes? Because I feel like God did not answer prayers that I prayed that I felt like he owed me. Boy, is that not a spirit of the older brother? And I bet you can find them in your hearts too. What about your attitude towards others? Do you have a general irritability sometimes towards those who grate on your nerves? Or an irritability towards God? Do you desire to know God, to get lost in the wonder of who He is? Or do you desire to get from God while having an attitude of, well, God helps those who help themselves. I've helped myself. God, where is mine? The older brother tendency fills our hearts because we want 
to rely on ourselves because deep down we don't know if we can trust God. And what this passage gets to us and shows us is that the older brother heart will keep you from the love of God. You know, there's a a story that was told by Elizabeth Elliot. This is not a biblical story. I, I don't know where she picked it up from. But this helps us to understand the, the, the morality, the righteousness that we try to muster in our own strength in an effort to try to coerce the hand of God or the favor of God upon us. And she tells a story of, imagine a bunch of disciples who are going to be day, doing a day's journey with Jesus. And so at the beginning of the day, Jesus tells each of the disciples, hey, pick up a rock and carry it with you as we go. And so Peter uh, picks up just a small little pebble, or small little rock, and puts it in his pocket like, all right, this is easy. And so they're journeying along the road, and they get to lunchtime. And Jesus says, hey, guys, remember that rock I told you to pick up? Throw it down on the ground. And so Peter picks the rock up and throws it down, picks it out of his pocket, throws it down on the ground, and it turns into a small bite of bread. And Jesus says, that's lunch. Peter says, oh, man, I should have gotten a bigger rock. So then Jesus says, they, they finish lunch, and Jesus says, all right, everybody pick up a rock. Time to keep going. So Peter finds, like, the biggest boulder that he can possibly find to carry. And he is lugging that thing, sweating in that, in that, in that Middle Eastern heat, carrying that thing and, 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 uh, under the weight of it on his shoulder all afternoon until they get to dinner time. And then Jesus says, all right, guys, it's time to eat. Throw the rock down on the ground. And Peter drops the thing on the ground, but it stays a rock. And Jesus, or Peter says to him, hey, why, why didn't that turn into bread for me? And Jesus says to him, were you carrying that rock for yourself or for me? What are you carrying your good morality, your righteous deeds for? Is it so you can coerce or twist the arm or manipulate God into doing for you what you think you should deserve? Now that's been the case in my heart far too often. So where do we turn? How do I receive the love of the Father? How do I break this wall of the older brother tendencies in my heart and enter into the grace of the Father with the the, the great need that I have like the younger brother? Well, we turn and look towards the older brother that we need. As I told you, with the inheritance, it's fascinating. A reason that the older brother was so put out was that this was now going to cost him. The younger brother crowding back into the family meant that it's going to slice up even more of the older brother's promised inheritance. Yet the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus became the older brother that we need. Think about it. Jesus was perfect in his sinless righteousness. Jesus was perfect in his holiness, in his, in his service to his father. Yet he never did it in an effort to say, look, God, look what I have done for you. Look what you owe me. He did it out of a desire and a heart of love and adoration for his father. And so Jesus became the older brother that we need. And he came the older brother that we need not by trying to preserve what was his and keep it from younger brothers like us from slicing in on it. But what did he give? He gave his inheritance to us and he freely gave of all of himself even to the point of death that younger brothers and younger sisters like you and I may be brought back into the family. Jesus is the older brother that we need. And so we find by this story that we come into the love of the Father, we come into the feast of the Father by the grace of the older brother that we need, and it is through that 
that we find forgiveness. We're trying to trust in our own self-righteousness to make ourselves right with God. See, this parable of the two sons reveals that the two sons or the two brothers each tried to make their own path to God. One via self-discovery, the other via self-righteousness. But the gospel meets both the one trying to find it in their own strength and self-discovery and trying to find it in their own morality and good deeds and pride and righteousness and and, and self-righteousness. And it says that you must turn not only from your actions of rebellion against God, but from your motivations and your heart of rebellion against God. And you come to me through Christ. And and this is what he says in verse 32. He reiterates this picture. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I asked you at the beginning of the sermon, what path would you choose for those who love you, either option A or option B? And yes, it was a trick question. But the path that we walk down to find and to know, to live in the grace of God in Jesus Christ, is to recognize not only the danger of option A, but the danger of option B in trusting in our self-righteousness. For in doing so, we deny ourselves, we rob ourselves of the experience of the love of God the Father because we find ourselves unwilling to enter into the feast of the grace of Jesus Christ because we say, I don't need it. I have all that I have in what I have done. Let us be people who freely, boldly, unrelentingly run to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, confessing not only our sin outwardly, but our sin inwardly, our motivations that, that, would, that, would, be, that, would, that would be born of ourselves and not of adoration for our Father.